0: Morning, everybody. Go ahead and grab a Bible. Open up to John chapter 10. John chapter 10. Yeah, let me reiterate real quick as you're doing that, just that invitation to come to our grafted meeting. So that'll be right up in the youth room. Uh, as Linda said, you don't need to be Jewish. Our heart is to be able to minister to Jewish and non-Jewish people alike and bring them together into uh community. So if you're just interested in like, hey, I know Park's planting this church and I don't know what in the world it is about, or I'm, I'm interested in being a part of it or partnering with it in some way. It's only a half hour. I'd encourage you to come check it out. Um, also, I wanted to kind of throw an open invitation out there. We've been doing kind of monthly gatherings for kind of our church plant team and kind of people that are interested uh, in the plant at large. And so there's going to be one next Sunday. Uh, And I just want to throw an invitation out. If anyone wants to come and check that out, it's really fun. We get together, we worship, we eat, uh, we just chat. And most of the time, we just spend hanging out. And some of us that have kids spend most of the time just chasing our kids around. Uh, And so that'll be next week. We'll put an RSVP uh, for that in Park Weekly uh, so that you can uh, sign up so we can know how many people to expect uh, for that. But yeah, if I haven't met you, my name's Matt. I serve as the church planting resident here. I'm excited to get into Uh, John chapter 10. We're picking up in the latter half of the chapter that Andrew had begun last week. But let me pray again as we open up God's Word, and we'll just jump right into this. Father, we are grateful. We're grateful that you have spoken to us through your written Word, and as we'll see today, most fully in the living Word, Jesus, your Son. Lord, I pray that as we open this text that we would gaze upon your glory, that we would see what you have done and that we would be drawn to you in intimacy and in love. Holy Spirit, would you have your way among us in this room? Would you encourage us? Would you convict us? Would you cause us to grow in you so that as it says in scripture, you will bring to completion the work that you began on the day of Jesus Lord, thank you for it. you will do. We we pray in Messiah's name, amen. All right, let me ask a question of you to start out this morning. When was the last time the Lord significantly pushed you out of your comfort zone? When was the last time you felt this inclination that you thought he put on you, or maybe you heard him speak audibly or however he signaled that, when was the last time you felt like he was calling you to do something? And you're like, Lord, I can't do that. How, how could that be what you want for me? Lord, that's, that makes me pretty uncomfortable. I'll tell you a story about a time in my life when I was pretty, uh, pretty significantly pushed out of my comfort zone. As I got to the end of my college career, the last couple years, I got into this relationship with this girl. This is how all good stories start. You get into a relationship, right? I got into this relationship, and it was, it was pretty serious. I actually thought for a season that I was going to end up marrying this girl that I had been dating. We dated for almost two years. But what I found as we were going towards the end of my college years, as the Lord was pulling me into ministry, is that her and I were on two different trajectories. And a lot of that had to do with uh, she was younger than I was, I was a little bit older, and just the seasons of, of life we were in were different. And I remember a distinct moment in the midst of God kind of moving me away from that relationship, where I felt him tell me that I needed to break that relationship off. Needless to say, this was significantly out of my comfort zone for one who thought he was going to marry this girl. And so I fought with him. We wrestled. I felt like Jacob, just kind of wrestling with God. And I remember sitting at at my kitchen table in the apartment that I was renting and just bawling and asking God, do not take this relationship away from me. In my ignorance, I convinced myself that it was okay for me to stay and only for uh, the next year to go by. And through circumstances outside of my control, she broke up with me. (laughs) But the reality was this, that God had a plan and a purpose in that. And it was, if I were to step out of my comfort zone and would have followed him in the first place, I would have found out what I found out later on. And it's that being out of that relationship was actually what catalyzed me stepping into the next season. It actually helped me step into the life and purposes that God had for me. I wouldn't have the family that I have if I had stayed in that relationship. All of us have these moments where the Lord asks us to come out of our comfort zone because he wants to give us life. And we're gonna see that today. Today, we're returning to John's gospel. And again, we're gonna come back to this theme of of the good Shepherd. Last week, Andrew pressed into this claim that Jesus made of himself, describing himself and his complete commitment to the sheep, even to the point of death. Jesus made it very clear that his mission was not to just bring his sheep, his people, any sort of life, but life in full, life in abundance. Now, once again, in chapter 10, we're going to read that Jesus is in Jerusalem, I feel like every time we open John's gospel, he is in Jerusalem, right? And when Jesus is in Jerusalem, that spells trouble. But Jesus is there for a pretty specific holiday, one that was not as big of a deal to them, but it's probably one that is more familiar to us. Jesus was there for Hanukkah. The text will start out saying he was there for the feast of dedication. The word for dedication in Hebrew is Hanukkah, hence, Hanukkah. This is the holiday where they celebrate that a couple hundred years before the time of Jesus, there was a rebellion amongst the Jewish community against a a tyrannical ruler who desecrated the temple. And they fought him off, and they rededicated the temple, and they celebrated that every year. And so Jesus is in Jerusalem celebrating what the Jewish community celebrates even today. And when he's there, he's gonna encounter some from his own tribe, from his own community, and what they're gonna do is they're gonna seek clarity from him. And it's really unclear actually what their motives are. It's, it could be that some of them are trying to trap him in his words. It could be that some of them are actually interested in what he has to say. It's probably a little of both based on how the group responds to him. But they have this idea where they need to know whether he is the Messiah. And he will once again affirm his Messiahship. But what he's going to do, like he does to us, he's gonna push them out of their comfort zones. He's gonna screw with their categories. And he's gonna make it very clear that only if they accept him for who he is, is there abundant life to be found. And I wanna challenge us this morning with the same truth. Do we want Jesus for who he is? Or do we want Jesus for who we want him to be. We say it again, do we want Jesus for who he is or do we want Jesus for who we want him to be? Because the text is gonna make clear that when we sell Jesus short for who he is, the person that actually ends up getting the short end of the stick is us because his desire is to meet every need that we have. His heart is to exceed our expectations. The scriptures say that at God's right hand are pleasures forevermore. He desires to meet every need we have to the full, but they're only to be met in him. So let's look. We're going to start in verse 22 this morning. First thing we're going to see in the text is what Jesus's sheep do. Verses 22 to 27, look with me. At that time, the feast of dedication, Hanukkah, took place at Jerusalem. Jerusalem. It was winter and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you and you do not believe. The works that I do in my father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. So he's there in Jerusalem for Hanukkah Hanukkah takes place later in the year. This is why around kind of the Christmas season you're seeing in the fall that Hanukkah pops up with the Jewish community and Christmas and Advent pops up uh, within the believing community. And, and so what's going on is it's a little bit colder. So they're in the east side of the temple under kind of the, the portico area trying to shelter from the elements. And they come to Jesus and they say, tell us, are you the Messiah? And he says, I already told you. I've already made this clear to you. But what he goes on to say is it wasn't through his words. In fact, the only person he's actually verbally said that he's the Messiah to is the Samaritan woman in chapter four so far, but he shows them through his actions. See, as one commentator says, the issue is not that he hasn't made himself clear to them. The issue is that they don't accept what is being clarified, And so their unwillingness to accept him as the Messiah that he is, to believe upon him, reveals something he says. It reveals that they were not his sheep to begin with. And he contrasts this with what his sheep do do, what characterizes his people. Jesus says that his sheep relate to him and they respond to him. They relate to him and they respond to him. You see, these Jewish individuals that Jesus had been talking to, they had this belief based on the text in Ezekiel that Andrew had talked about last week, that God was going to be the ultimate shepherd of his people. That one day he would come and he would get rid of all the false rulers and he would take his sheep to himself and they expected that they would include them. But here was the issue, that when Jesus, the shepherd himself, was showing up, a number of them were rejecting him right? This says in verse 19 last week that there was a division among the Jews. Some were acknowledging him and some were rejecting him. And clearly from what we're going to see in the text, a number of them here want to reject him as well. As one person pointed out, I thought it was helpful. he, He pointed out that there was supposed to be a level of recognition, among God's sheep. That if they had been listening to God all along, if they had been devoted to him, if their, if their hearts had been changed and had been devoted to the God of Israel, that when the God of Israel took on flesh, when the Messiah would show up, that there would be something familiar about him. He would be an echo of what they had been following all along in their God. But instead of seeing, seeking closeness with him, instead of saying, oh, I know you, I, I've heard my God speak like that, I want to follow you, you are his Messiah. Instead of seeking closeness and obedience to him, his efforts were falling on deaf ears. And instead of responding to him with joy, recognizing that the Messiah had shown up, they were responding with offense. But Jesus makes it clear that his sheep would relate to him and respond to him. Friends, this morning, that is the sign that you belong to Jesus. Do you recognize him? for who he is? Do you acknowledge him for who he claims to be? And do you find yourself willing to respond to him at all costs? Now, this is not to say that we never have doubts, right? I think to ask really good questions is good and it's healthy and it's right. And I have those moments myself And nor is this about having perfect obedience where everything Jesus says to do, you never fall short of it, right? That's not what this is about. It is about asking, do I care about what he thinks? Do I care about what he says to me? And is my desire at the end of the day, in my heart of hearts, is my desire to please him even if my journey of seeking to please him is an imperfect one, even if my journey of seeking to please him is a bumpy one? But he moves from talking about what his sheep do, how they respond and and relate to him, to the nature of that relationship, what the byproduct of them connecting to him is. And this is what I would call what Jesus' sheep have. Look with me at verse 28 to to verse uh, 30, the end of that paragraph there. He says, I give them eternal life, talking about his sheep, and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. See, Jesus talks about this two-way relationship that he has with his sheep right? They, they recognize him, and he knows them, and then, and then there's this responding to him. But what he makes really clear here is the benefit of the relationship actually only comes from one side. It only comes from Jesus's side. See, he says that he gives them life unending, and he provides them with a sense of security, He tells them that death is not the end of the road, but resurrection to life. And when the scriptures talk about life, it's talking about restoration to God himself. And what Jesus says is this cannot be taken away. Look at verse 12 with me. He used a hired hand and not a shepherd. This is the text Andrew looked at last week. Who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them. Clearly, Jesus is picking up on this when he says, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. No one will snatch them out of the father's hand in verse 29. Right? So we see here that not only is Jesus committed to securing his sheep, but the Father is in on this project as well. And they are so united in that work of providing security for God's people that they are one. That they are one. Now this phrase, they are one, that he says, I and the Father are one, is kind of a double entendre. On its face, what he's referring to is the fact uh, that that they are one in their efforts to save God's people, to secure God's people unto eternity. But what the Greek actually says is not that they're one in their efforts or not that they're one person. What it says is they are one thing. They are one essence. And this is triggering for the people that he's talking to. Clearly, they get upset at him. Eventually here, they're going to try and stone him right? This is triggering for them because from the time that they were children, they have been reciting every single day since they could talk the same prayer. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. This is the creed of Israel. This is the affirmation that they are called to be allegiant to the God of Israel and him alone. And what we see happening here is that Jesus is stepping into the role of the one whom their creed is about. Once again, Jesus is taking on this kind of God category. Where he draws a distinction between him and the Father, and yet he's very clear that they are inseparable in their unity. They are inseparable in their nature, in who they are by their very being. It's texts like these that lead us to the Trinity, the Father, Son, and the Spirit, where there's distinctions between the persons, and yet there's affirmation that they are one being. You see, Jesus is not being schizophrenic here, right? Where he says, The Father is in me, and I'm in the Father, and I and the Father are one, and so on and so forth. He's not having multiple personalities. What he's demonstrating is that God is by nature different than us. And he makes it very clear to them that true security is to be found in him and him alone. Do we believe that? Do we believe that true security is only found in him? See, the Father is greater than all, as Jesus says, and there is no one and there is no thing that can separate you from his love in Christ The text says that we are completely secure if we have trusted in Jesus. Do we believe that? Do we believe that in Jesus, we are completely secure with regard to our dignity? That no matter what people think of us, no matter what our reputation is around us, that we are beloved in the Father's eyes? Do we believe that we're completely secure when it comes to our righteousness, how we are? That no matter what we do or don't do, at the end of the day, if we are in Christ, then we are seen as perfectly righteous before God. Do we believe that our inheritance is completely secure in Jesus? That no matter what you have or don't have, what 1 Peter says, that in Christ, we have an inheritance that is imperishable, that is incorruptible, that is unfading, Now you might say, Matt, you you don't know me, you don't know my story, you don't know my journey, you don't know what I've been through, I don't feel secure in my walk with the Lord. And this might be true, I I might not know you. I might not know everything about your story, but here's what I do know. I know that Jesus said it, and so I, I wanna affirm that 100%. But on a deeper level, here's the reality, that Jesus receiving you, that Jesus preserving you, that Jesus providing you with security was actually never about you and your journey to begin with. See, God's commitment to you, his saving you, his loving you is not actually about you ultimately. It's about Jesus. It's about what he's done. It's about who he is. It's about how he intercedes before the Father for you. It's about the works that he is doing, that he is going to make reference to. And I hope that as we come to communion this morning, that we can recognize that, that as we eat of the body and the blood of Jesus, we're recognizing that I'm taking him upon myself because it's about him and it's not about me. But let me ask this question. What if we lived as if this was true, that we had perfect security with the father because of the son? What if we lived as if this was true, which it is, right? Are there certain decisions that you would make? Or are there things that you would choose not to do in light of such security? If this is true, what's, what's one thing, let me ask you this, what's one thing that Jesus might be inviting you to step into today? If we have this sense of security with Him, if you, if you ultimately could not fail in stepping into God's plans and purposes as His Spirit moves, What's one thing you would step into today? Let's go to verse 31, the last section of text this morning. And what I want to invite you to do is take a deep breath with me. Just, okay. We're about to head into the weeds of uh, a very challenging text. And it's really important that we, we work through this together and we, we have our heads on straight. The next thing that Jesus is going to communicate is what his works communicate about him. Look at verses 31 to 42. We'll finish the text. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, it is not for a good work that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you being a man, make yourself God. Get ready for the fun, everyone. Here we go. Jesus answered them, "'Is it not written in your law, I said, you are gods? "'If he called them gods to whom the word of God came "'and scripture cannot be broken, "'do you say of him whom the Father consecrated "'and sent into the world, "'you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? "'If I am not doing the works of my Father, "'then do not believe me. "'But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, "'believe the works, that you may know and understand "'that the Father is in me and I am in the Father.'" Again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. He went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first. And there he remained and many came to him. And they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true. And many believed him there. So we're gonna look now at what Jesus works communicate. So the leaders here, right? Those that are rejecting Jesus, they're offended at what he says. And once again, they try and stone him. Okay, once again they try and stone him. And what he does is he kind of draws out their reasoning for seeking to stone him. He says, "For which good works, right, are are you going to stone me?" He he knows it's it's not for good works that they're trying to stone him, right? He's, he's, he's kind of baiting them into the conversation, and they respond by saying he's blaspheming. They say, you're just a man, and you are making yourself into God. This is ironic, considering this is going on during Hanukkah, because the, the tyrant, a couple hundred years before, who desecrated the temple, his name was Antiochus Epiphanes. Epiphanes means God manifest, right? And so what's going on is during the time when this tyrant sought to be God manifest, you have now God manifest coming to redeem the people. You see the irony that's kind of built into the timing of the text going on here. But he draws them into uh, saying that he is blaspheming. You see, they, like many people today, do not find it hard to recognize Jesus as maybe a good man, a good example, a good teacher, a historical figure, right? but it's a lot harder to acknowledge that he's God, and he's going to press into that full throttle here. He responds with a quotation, is it not written in your law? I said you are gods. This is from Psalm 82.6. Okay, there's a lot of debate around what Jesus is getting at in this passage, but I think the best thing we can do is actually read Psalm 82. It's not very long and it'll confuse us more for a moment, but I promise it'll bring clarity at the end. So go to Psalm 82 with me. Psalm 82, here's what it says. God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Salah. Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. They have neither uh, knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. Here's where Jesus gets into it here. I said, you are gods, sons of the most high, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit The nations. What an interesting text. So you might be looking at Psalm 82 here for a moment, and you see this lowercase G Gods word, and it makes you a little uncomfortable. Let me let me assure you of this that the Hebrew word that stands behind this lowercase G gods, it's the word Elohim, and and what it stands for is simply uh, a spiritual being. It's not saying there's more than one creator, it's not saying there's another God of Israel. Okay, this isn't polytheism as we think of it. Okay, that's not what is going on here. This is referring to spiritual beings. Okay, the the, the scriptures are clear that there is one omniscient, omnipotent, perfect creator. But just like he created physical beings like us, the scriptures tell us that he also created spiritual beings. And I think we inherently know this when we talk about things like angels, when we talk about things like demons, right? These are types of Elohim. Okay? Even if you're not a follower of Jesus, you have a category for this kind of spiritual world. But what the Hebrew Bible introduces to us is another category of spiritual beings that are not angels or demons. That are they're called b'nai Elohim or b'nai Elim. They are sons of God. As the late Michael Heiser says, these sons of God are spiritual beings who have a higher level of jurisdiction and responsibility than, say, an angel who would serve as a messenger. That's actually what the word angel means. And what Psalm 82 is all about is God condemning these spiritual beings who have betrayed the role that God had appointed to them over the nations. That's what he says. You are gods. You are Elohim. You are spiritual beings, sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die. Welcome to the strange world of the Bible, okay? Okay. Now, how does this relate to what Jesus says? How does this relate to, to him quoting this to them in their uh, desire to stone him? Go ahead back to John 10. Well, it relates to what Jesus says because they're getting caught up in the fact that he's called himself God's son, right? He says he is one with the father. He keeps relating to himself as the son of the father. And what Jesus says is this, if in your own scriptures in the Hebrew Bible, there are these beings that can rightly be called sons of God, then why are you getting offended when I call myself one of them? You see, to these guys who believe that he's man making himself God, Jesus is saying, number one, you should not be offended because you should already have that category. But number two, I'm actually more than a man. And Jesus pushes it again by by saying, he he loves to push the envelope, that they need to stop getting caught up in what he says and they need to look at what he's doing. Because if they look at what he's doing, it reveals his oneness with the Father. That he's not just any spiritual being who is taking on flesh, but he's actually the creator, the co-regent with the Father. That these Jewish individuals that he's talking to and those sons of God in Psalm 82 are called to worship and obey. See, this is why they're upset, because he sets up a category and then steps very quickly into it, and then raises the bar. He says, I am the creator who has taken on flesh. As one study note I read put it, that Jesus is not man making himself God, as they suppose, right? He is God become man, and they want to arrest him for that. And so he flees. He goes out of their jurisdiction, and ironically, or, or in God's providence, you might say, many actually come to believe once he leaves their sight, right? But this is very lofty and high language for Jesus. And I think in the evangelical tradition, in the evangelical church at large, we actually don't have a hard time acknowledging Jesus as God. I think sometimes we struggle with acknowledging him as man. But, but I think that sometimes we struggle to relate to him when we think of him as God. I think when we think about how great he is, that he's high and exalted, sitting at the right hand of the father for us, there's two ways that we we respond, excuse me. One of those ways is by being intimidated, by saying, Jesus, you are too good for me, that you are too high up there and I am down here. How can you relate to me in my circumstances? How, How can I connect with you? You are are too perfect, and I am too broken. And I think the result of seeing him as too good for us, as too high and exalted above us, is relational hesitancy, where we say, in my broken moments, in my moments where I actually have to look myself in the mirror, how could you love me, Jesus? And we struggle to come to him because he's way up there on the clouds of heaven, as Daniel 7 says but I want to encourage you towards a different response when we think about Jesus' divinity. I want to encourage you towards humility because that one who is sitting at the right hand of the Father, the one who has all the nations being put under his feet, he took on flesh and as great as he is, he loves you. As exalted as he is, he knows you. And as much as he knows us, with all of our warts and with all of our successes, he desires to be with us, to rescue us. You see, when we see how great Jesus is and the fact that that great being took drastic steps to be with me, it no longer results in hesitancy, it results in relational intimacy, which is the thing that Jesus says he has with his sheep. You see, Jesus is evidence that God not only wants to be loosely involved in our world. Jesus is evidence that he wants to be completely involved. So involved, in fact, that he wants to change the trajectory of our world from broken and destruction to life. And he wants to do that in our lives as well. Part of the issue that these individuals that Jesus is clashing with have had is that they're drawing a line in the sand when it comes to Jesus when it comes to their comfort zones. They say, Jesus, this is who you can be and you can go no further. And what the Bible says is that's a very dangerous thing to do. In fact, we all have that same issue. We all draw lines in the sand of who Jesus can be to us and who we can't be. We draw lines in the sand around where Jesus' jurisdiction over our life starts and where his authority over our life ends but this presents real problems. One of the issues with this is who we believe Jesus to be impacts how we will follow him. Who we believe Jesus to be impacts how we will follow him. And so the result of us drawing those lines in the sand is we limit Jesus. And the result of that is not that Jesus loses power. The result of that is we limit our joy. We limit the intimacy that we get with the father who loves us. The other, the other issue here is this, that if we're not entrusting ourselves to the Jesus of Scripture, to the Jesus of history, who are we entrusting ourselves to when we make Jesus into who we want him to be? We're entrusting ourselves to an idol that we've created in our head. And here's the thing, guys. Idols don't give abundant life. Only Jesus gives abundant life. So I want to invite you this morning to take a good look, as he says to these leaders, take a good look at Jesus' works and ask what do they communicate about him and his heart for our world and his heart for you. Take a look at his miracles and his sinless life and ask what do they communicate? I think they communicate that God isn't done with our world, that he actually wants to intervene, that he actually wants to do something with you and with me. Take a look at his crucifixion, and ask, what does that say about Jesus? I think it says that God is committed to our world, that he would rather die than see you die. He would rather see decay than see our world see decay. And what does his resurrection say? I think it says two things. I think number one, it says that we can have full assurance that life is found in Jesus, because we look at his resurrection and recognize that it was his life that overcame the grave but I think it also validates Jesus too. See, the father does not raise people who make blasphemous claims. The father raises the son to validate the fact that these claims he's making about who he is and the life that's to be found in him, that they are true. And if they are true, what are we to do about it? My encouragement for you is to recognize Jesus for all of who he is, Seeking every day to to learn more about him like you would a significant other or your spouse. And out of that, recognize that as great as he is, as you learn more about his greatness every day, recognize that he has come near to us. That he has gone to great lengths in his love for us and let that lead you to intimacy and response to him. Asking yourself this question, I wanna come back to it. What is one step that he's calling you into today? Maybe for you this morning, that's trusting in Jesus for the first time, just kind of starting bare bones at the beginning here. And if that's your first step, then I would say that's the biggest step that you can make. But if you're a follower of Jesus, ask what specifically might he be asking me to do today? Whether it's inside my comfort zone or outside of my comfort zone. What could you be asking me, Lord, to do today? Because if you provide me with the security that you say, if you are who you claim to be, then we have to follow him. Then we have to follow him because in him is abundant life. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you that you sent Jesus, that in Jesus you have become near, that in Jesus is life and life in abundance. Lord, help us to believe that. Cause us by your spirit to believe that and to entrust ourselves to the shepherd who is truly good so that we might experience the fullness of life that he has for us. Lord, let us look at Jesus and not be offended by those who we read about today, but let us take the discomfort that we have when he calls us into moments of faith and help us to rest in the security that he has provided by his life and his death and his resurrection. As we come to the table today, Lord, please help us to remember that sacrifice that he's made and edify us by your spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.